This afternoon we come to the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 5. This begins a section on our deliverance. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Uh, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins by asking, what is the chief end of man? Why was man created? What's his purpose or reason for being? The Shorter Catechism responds with a beautiful answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God created man as the crown of his creation. He made man to praise and glorify him and to live in fellowship with him. Yet the sad reality is that many today do not live their lives for God. Many do not know God or want to know him. Many live an act of rebellion against the Lord. Many do not enjoy close fellowship with God. Do you know why not? Why people are alienated from God? Or why we so often struggle to live in close communion with Him? The problem is sin. With the fall into sin, our hearts were corrupted, our minds darkened, and our wills inclined to seek after our own sinful desires. God is holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. By nature, we are sinful, and we love the darkness instead of the light. Even if we wanted to, we could not, in and of ourselves, come to God. Sin has put a chasm between him and us. Sin needs to be paid for before we can come to God. In the Old Covenant, God gave his people regulations about how it was possible for them to be restored to communion with him. In the book of Leviticus, the Lord prescribed a sacrificial system 
for how people could attain ritual holiness so they could approach God so that he could live among them. By means of laws about sacrifices and offerings, God taught his people that sin is costly. It requires payment. Yet the laws of the Old Covenant were only a shadow of a greater reality that was yet to come. They point forward to the true mediator and deliverer who alone could make payment for our sins. This afternoon we'll consider the need for payment to be made, for us to be restored to God's favor. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. God requires a payment for sin, for us to be restored to his favor. We will consider the inadequacy of animal sacrifices, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, and the need to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Many Christians struggle with the book of Leviticus. It details many laws about animal sacrifices, ritual cleanness, and the service of the Old Testament priests. These things seem so distant from our lives as 21st century Christians. They relate to a different age and to a culture vastly different from ours. And so we wonder if this book has any relevance to our lives. Yet when we dig into the book of Leviticus, it reveals the background of why Christ's atoning work was necessary. It gives us a more detailed understanding of the glorious work of our Savior. The book of Leviticus has something important to say about our service to God. The theme of this book is summarized in Leviticus 20, verse 26, where the Lord says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. In the Old Covenant, God gave detailed regulations for how his people were to attain and maintain holiness so that they could live with God. Many of the principles put forward in this book have application for our lives. For if we want to enjoy fellowship with God, it also requires us to live in holiness before Him. The problem that we face is that by nature, we are not holy. In the last three Lord's Days, we've learned to know our sins and misery from the law of God. When we compare what God requires in His law with how we actually live, we see how we sin against God again and again. By nature, we are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. We are so corrupt that without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we're totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. The result is that if God were to enter into judgment with us, no one could stand before him. God is a holy God. His justice requires that sin committed against him be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The point is, beloved, that as unholy people, we cannot appear before God. 
Sin has created this great big chasm between God and us. We're on one side of the cliff. God is on the other. The cliff walls are too steep for us to climb. There's a crocodile-infested river running between them. And the problem is, there's no bridge to get us across. So how can we be reconciled to God? How can we be restored to his favor? Is there any way for us to live in close fellowship with our God? Lord's Day 5 asks the question this way. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be restored to God's favor? Leviticus deals with this basic question. You need to understand that after God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, they rebelled against him. God had displayed his power and glory in sending ten plagues against the Egyptian gods by delivering his people through the waters of the Red Sea. Yet Israel forgot about the Lord and they worshipped the golden calf instead. God was supremely angry with them, ready to destroy them. It was only through the mediation of Moses that God's anger was turned away. Yet his people needed instruction about how their sins could be paid for and how they could be restored to God's favor. Leviticus 1 begins by giving instructions about the burnt offering. For many of us, the most we know about burnt offerings is when mom overcooks dinner in the oven or when dad burns the hamburgers on the barbecue grill. We joke about how those juicy hamburgers were turned into burnt offerings. Yet this example does teach us something about these sacrifices that the people offered to God. When you offered a burnt offering, the whole bull, sheep, goat, or bird was sacrificed to God. The whole animal was literally burnt upon the altar. The result would be that smoke would go up to heaven. It went up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The result was that the Lord would look with favor on the people bringing such sacrifices. It's important to note that the offering regulated in Leviticus 1 refers primarily to a personal sacrifice offered voluntarily by the individual Israelite. Regulations about the burnt offering stress the involvement of the person who was bringing the sacrifice. That person had to present and prepare the sacrifice. While other parts of Scripture regulate the burnt offerings that were to be presented to the Lord at set times and specific occasions, the focus in Leviticus 1 is on the private sacrifice of an individual Israelite. People were free to go to the tabernacle and bring a sacrifice to God. The Hebrew word for offering in our text indicates that it was a gift. People might offer such a gift to God out of thankfulness for his mercies or for the paying of vows. Think about what's written in Psalm 66. 
says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals and with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Thus, every Israelite had the opportunity to appear before God, to thank and praise him, and to pray for the things on that person's heart. The people of Israel had some understanding of why and when and how burnt offerings were to be sacrificed to God. For burnt offerings were offered to the Lord already from the earliest days of history. After the flood, Noah offered some of the clean animals and birds to God as a burnt offering. Genesis 8 tells us that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Thus the Israelites learned that the burnt offering was a way of satisfying God's wrath and of obtaining his favor. There's a second event in Israel's history where a burnt offering was offered to the Lord. In Genesis 22, we read of how the Lord required Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Because of his faith in God, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son. In God's grace, he stopped Abraham from offering his son. He provided a ram in its place. From this, the Israelites would have learned that in the burnt offering, the sacrificed animal died in place of the man. Isaac didn't die. But God provided an animal in his place. Thus, burnt offerings could serve as a substitute to make atonement for a person's sins. The location of the altar gives us a further hint about why sacrifices like the burnt offering were required. The altar was the first thing an Israelite encountered when he entered through the gateway into the courtyard of the temple. It was located between the gateway and the door of the tabernacle itself. It stood between the Israelite and God. The point is that the sacrifices offered on the altar enabled a worshiper to draw near to God. Without the altar and the sacrificial system, the Israelites could not have dwelt in communion with the Lord. Here the need for sacrifices comes into focus. It's our sins that have separated us from God. Before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve lived with God in paradise. You never read about them offering sacrifices to God there. At that point in time, there was no need for blood to be shed. Yeah, with the fall into sin and the corruption of man, the perfect communion between the Lord and his people broke down. God, in his grace, provided a way for his people to approach him. He allowed his people to present sacrifices and so to be restored to a living relationship with him. Leviticus 1 details the act of participation 
of the worshiper in presenting the sacrifice. Verse 4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Just as a ram served as a substitute for Isaac, so the bulls, sheep, and goats served as substitutes for God's covenant people. They laid their hands on these animals, symbolizing the transfer of sins from themselves to that animal. While they deserved to suffer death when they came before the Lord because of their sins, he accepted the blood of the animals in their place. It was sprinkled around the altar. Thus, it made atonement for the worshiper. So, beloved, why don't we offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to God anymore? Well, the basic reason is that these sacrifices only served as shadows of what was to come. Hebrews 10 verse 1 makes this clear. It points out that the same sacrifices that were continually offered year after year could never make perfect those who drew near to God. The sacrifices served as a reminder of sins and of God's just requirement that our sins had to be paid for. But these sacrifices themselves did not atone for sin. For, says the writer of Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Our catechism explains why animal sacrifices were inadequate as a payment for our sins. It gives two reasons. The first is that God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Our God is a fair God. Man sinned, so man needs to pay for sin. Animals were valuable. The fact that they could be offered as sacrifices indicated the need for the shedding of blood to pay for our sins. But the point is that God would never accept an animal sacrifice as full payment for human sin. There's also a second reason why animal sacrifices could not atone for human sin. Our catechism says that no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's wrath against sin and deliver others from it. You see, beloved, God is terribly angry with our sins. Our sins require adequate payment. We deserve to come under the everlasting punishment of body and soul. By rights, we deserve to be that burnt offering. To be burned up for all the terrible ways in which we have offended God with our sins. God's justice requires payment in kind. His justice requires that sins committed against to be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So we see the inadequacy of animal sacrifices. Brings us to our second point, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. One of the noteworthy things about the sacrifices offered up as burnt offerings is that they had to be perfect. 
Second best was not good enough for the Lord. Leviticus 1 indicates that the bull, sheep, or goats had to be male, and they had to be without defect. This symbolized the perfect sacrifice that the Lord Jesus would make. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.19 that we have, rede- we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. The prophet Isaiah speaks in chapter 53 about the coming of the Messiah as the suffering servant. Isaiah speaks about how he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He points out that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Although we all, like sheep, have gone astray, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Already in the Old Covenant, it's made clear that Christ would come to make atonement for us, that he would suffer in our place. This is confirmed for us in the New Testament. In John 1, verse 29, we see how John the Baptist saw Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Our Lord was given the name Jesus, because he came to save his people from their sins. The scriptures make a direct link between the burnt offerings and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In Ephesians 5, verse 2, Paul speaks about how Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One Bible, translates, one Bible translation translates the fragrant offering as a sweet-smelling aroma. It reminds us of how God was pleased when his people brought him burnt offerings in the Old Covenant. Our reading from Hebrews 10 shows how Christ came to offer himself as a burnt offering for his people. The writer quotes from Psalm 40 to show how Jesus came to do the will of his Father in heaven. He gave himself, all of himself, as a sacrifice for our sins. During his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of God. He kept all of God's commandments. He lived a perfect life though often tempted to sin and do his own will. Submission to his Father in heaven was necessary for him to present himself as an offering without blemish and without spot. Jesus gave his whole life for us. His sacrificial service was motivated by love for the Father. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. His service was voluntary. In John 10, 15, Jesus expressed his willingness to give up his life for us. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. It was Christ's choice to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ offered up his body and blood on the cross in order to pay for our sins and to restore us to communion with God. The author of Hebrews says that we have been sanctified, that is, set apart or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's the glorious news of the gospel, beloved. That Jesus made the sacrifice we could not make. He paid the price we could not pay. That thereby he has bridged the chasm that stood between God and us. Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Please note that Jesus' sacrifice is a one-for-all sacrifice. The shedding of Jesus' blood has put an end to the need for animal burnt offerings and sacrifices. Atonement has been made. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to pay for the sins of this whole world. God will receive in grace all who come to him in repentance and faith. He calls on us to believe that Jesus is the mediator and deliverer who has reconciled us with God. Through Christ's great sacrifice, it's now possible for us to live in covenant fellowship with our God. This brings us to our final point, the need to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Christ has made full payment for our sins. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. With Christ's fulfillment of the old covenant sacrificial system, we could conclude that we don't need to present any sacrifices to God anymore. But beloved, that is incorrect. In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, we're called to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Out of thankfulness to God for the wondrous deliverance he has worked for us in Christ, we are called to offer up our lives to God as a sacrifice of praise to him. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. God wants us to praise him with our lips by calling on him in prayer, thanking him for all his wondrous works, and by singing to the glory of his name. But that's not all. God also wants us to show our thankfulness by how we live. 
by doing good to those around us, by sharing with those in need. Let it be clear that in the Old Covenant it was not the sacrifices themselves that interested God. God was after the hearts of his people. He wanted his people to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind. At different times in Israel's history, the people's worship became ritualized. They thought they could keep God happy by offering the prescribed sacrifices. But God was not happy with that kind of service. In Psalm 50, he told his people, Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Instead, God told his people, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Similarly, in Micah 6, the Lord showed his people that instead of offering all their prescribed sacrifices, they were to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with their God. Earlier, we read a small part from Mark 12, where Jesus answered the scribe's question about which commandment is the most important of all. This scribe agreed with Jesus' answer, saying that to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The point should be clear, beloved. God wants us to offer up our whole life to him. Our entire life is to be a whole burnt offering to God. We are to devote ourselves completely to doing his will. We began this sermon by asking, what is the chief end of man? Why were we created and what's our purpose or reason for being? The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes scripture's teaching on this by answering, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Beloved, it is only in Jesus Christ that we can do that. He gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be restored to God's favor. Let us show our thankfulness by devoting ourselves and all we have to God's service. Amen. In response to the gospel message, we'll sing from hymn 25, stanzas 1, 3, and 4. We'll do so standing. <laughs> 